red balloon. It's true, it's red, we all know our colors. The absolute truth is that this balloon is red. No, it's not. That's green. What? This right here is a green balloon. That is the prettiest yellow balloon. <laughs> yellow? This, this is red. Yeah, come over here. No, it's green. It's red! Yeah, I know, it's a red balloon. <laughs> hey, will you look at it from my point of view, please? What? Hey, nice blue balloon. It's blue. green! Green? It's red! Why are you saying it's red when it's blue, huh? It's totally purple from here! Purple? Okay, you know what? Let's just settle this once and for all, okay? Where are you going? Hey, what color is this balloon? I only see in black and white. 
Hey, Mark, what color? There is no balloon. This is ridiculous. Hey, I know what the problem is. Look, um, my mom taught me that this was blue. But, um, you know, then she said this is red and green, yellow, you know, and on and on. <laughs> okay, right. I get that your mom taught you that that was blue, but, I mean, that's not the truth. Whoa, why are you talking bad about his mom? Yeah. I'm not. Listen, I respect your mother. Thank you. And the way she raised you. She taught you that was blue. Our moms taught us that it was red. Right. That's the way it goes. I thought you oh. said it was green. It is green. See, I'm smart. I went to college. And in college, I learned all these different theories about color. Really? And my color professors who have doctorates in color. Do you have a doctorate in color? Uh, no. It shows. Okay? <laughs> they can't even agree on one theory of color, so you have to look at all the different theories and pick which one works best for you. And green is great for me. That makes sense. Thank you. No, you can't just pick whatever color fits your life the best. Red is red. Okay, do you know the word intolerant? Yeah. Because that's what you're being right now. All right, you're shoving your opinion down my throat. Okay, it's not my opinion, it's the truth. Hold on, hold on. All we're saying is that we need to stop arguing about trivial things. Like truth. You know, the funny thing about truth is, it's true. Whether you believe it or not. You know, truth today is relative, isn't it? The world we live in will tell you that what is right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me, and that we should not quibble or argue or debate or discuss how yours is wrong and mine is right, or mine is right and yours is wrong. You just must accept me as I am, and please do not judge me in the process because I have, a, I have a, an opinion that's different than yours, and if it is different from yours, if you judge me or debate with me or discuss with me any prospect that I am wrong in my evaluation and analysis, then you are being intolerant. Intolerance. It's the word of our culture today. It's the buzzword about how to discuss and to, to debate over issues that are especially important to the family. Uh, I just, the other day, I was uh, flipping through the channels. I don't know if you ever do this or not. And I was, I came across one of my favorite channels, which is Fox News. And uh, I'm not sure they're not as slanted as some others. They're just slanted more toward my opinion. And uh, you know what I'm saying? They say they're fair and balanced, but uh, uh, I, I, you know, well, anyway. There's a guy named O'Reilly that was on there. You know about O'Reilly? He's an interesting cat. He, uh, he says he's a, a news announcer, but I think he's more of a, an opinion guy. Or I'm not really quite sure how to judge his program. But they were talking about the definition of the family and how things are changing today. And, and he and I don't always agree on some of his concepts about the family and its development. But anyway, he said that the primary problem with the church today is the church always wants to bring into the debate or into the discussion about the definition of the family is the Bible. God. And he said we'd be better off if we left God out of the debate or the equation. I'm not sure for those of us who are Christians how we leave God and the Bible out of the debate or out of the discussion, especially when it comes to defining the family. God is the author of the family. God is the one who instituted the family. God is the one who ordained the family. And it's God who set the precedence for the family. And our nation was founded upon those principles. We began as a Christian nation. And so now, several hundred years later, there's a lot of discussion debate in regard to how our nation is to divide a family. So much so that our Supreme Court today is trying to figure out how, as a nation, we are to stand on the definition of a family. Well, I don't care what our nation says, what our president says, or future presidents who are already beginning to campaign for office seem to redefine what they say is the family. God is the only one who has the right to define the family. Now, I get it. The unbelieving world that doesn't recognize God and those who do recognize God who don't want God to have any say-so in how they organize or how they develop their family, I, I get it. God's not a factor in it. God shouldn't be taken into consideration. They don't, they don't believe in God or they don't want to follow God or they believe that God has changed. I get all that. Uh, let, let me ask you something, though. Well, I'm, I'm going to give a sidetrack here. When, when I was a Brazilian missionary kid in Brazil, uh, uh, we, uh, we bought two mikus. Anybody know what a miku is? You guys are from Africa. Miku are small monkeys, 
and they're very furry. And uh, when we purchased them, we were told by the person who sold us they were a male and female. And so um, we, we went on good faith, and we bought the monkeys, and we brought them home. And they, were, they never grow bigger than that. They have really long tails. And they loved the kids. They hated my dad. Always pooped on his shoulder, always bit him, and he would always thump them on the head. I think that's why they didn't like him. And, uh, but, but we learned after a while that we were anticipating little mikus to come at some point. Months later, nothing happened. So we had a vet examine them. To our horror and our surprise, they were not male and female. They were two male monkeys. Now, we had named these monkeys Adam and Eve. We had to rename them Adam and Steve. Now, I'm not a biologist, okay? I'm not really a theologian, although my younger son and I had a debate about that last week. If you believe in God, you're a theologian. But anyway, I know that two male monkeys will not equal a baby monkey. So if we leave God out of the equation, two men or two women who become a family cannot have children without the help of biology. And if we had done that hundreds of years ago, we would cease to exist as people. There would be no people on the planet. You would not be here. So just by the natural tendency alone, male and female together make and consist a family. That's how God created us, male and female. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, or Susie and Sue, but Adam and Eve, why? To procreate, to have children. Our society is wanting to redefine, renegotiate, and reshape this whole concept of the definition and the creation of the family that began with God. And they are saying to us that our view is too narrow and our concept is too narrow. And I'm convinced that anyone who stands at a pulpit in America in the next 10 to 20 years and who says anything different than what the culture is saying is probably more than likely going to see a decline in attendance and a shutting of the doors. Because the church of Christ today, at alarming rates, the younger adults are buying into the lie more and more and more that God did not create the, the family Adam and Eve. And that it's up to you to make that choice. We have a crisis in America today. We're going to have an eight-week series on the family. And I want to encourage you to be a part of this. Don't miss it. Some of you are single. I I get it. Some of you are hoping not to be single very long. I get it. Um, Some of you are are going to be, you know, kind of wrestling with some of the concepts that we're going to talk about in the definition of family and how how we do the family today. But I guarantee you it's all biblical and it's what God has instructed us and designed for the family. We're not going to look at all the aspects of the family, but we're going to look at the family. So next Sunday, a little commercial. Wives, I want you to bring your husbands. We're going to talk about marriage. I said we're going to talk about marriage. At the end of the service, you're going to have an opportunity to to, um, sort of renew your vows. All right? Now, husbands, don't shrink back. Be bold. It'll be okay. Uh, But we're going to look at John 4, and we're going to talk about the marriage. Now, if you're single and you're hoping to find somebody to marry, just sit next to a single person, and at the end of the service, you'll have a spouse while the time is over. All right? Just make sure it's an agreeable thing. But you have to have a license to do that. A license, if you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, so just because we, you know, you sit next to somebody and you mouth those words doesn't mean you're, you're legally married. So I just want to kind of throw that out. But we're going to have some fun next week. So uh, bring your spouse with you. If they're not here with you today, trick them into coming and they'll be surprised at the end of the service and, and you'll get to, to, to renew your vows. So we're going to have that time together at the end of our service next week for those of us, of us who want to do that. So be brave and, and, and so, so be, be here next week. Let's talk this morning about the first subject that I want to talk about. And as we see it on the screen, I want you to understand that unless we start here, we can't start anywhere. And the next slide is going to tell us that where we want to start is with this whole concept of exclusivity. Exclusivity. You see, God has to be exclusive, the, not only the author, but he has to be the authority in your individual life and in your marriage and in your family in order for this whole thing and this whole concept of the pieces that need to be tightly placed together so that you'll have a strong and healthy family. God needs to be that authority. And unless he is, it's not going to work. And so I want us to stand together. and We're going to read a familiar passage, more than likely that you already know. 
And it's a passage that's found in uh, Joshua chapter 24. These are the words of Joshua as he is speaking to the people of God thousands of years ago that I believe were not only relevant then, but they are still relevant for us today. So let's read this, this incredible personal statement from Joshua, and I hope this will be your statement today. Joshua 24, 15. Let's read it out loud. But if serving the Lord, say, oh, wait a minute, are you ready? Turn to your neighbor, say, I'm ready. All right, let's start over. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's say that last sentence again. Say it with passion and say it a little louder. Let's say it together. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, I pray that as we stand and open your word this morning, you speak into our hearts, into our families. Help me clearly bring this scripture to life today. It is living. These are words that you spoke through your prophet Joshua many, many years ago, but they're still relevant today. Your word is always true and it's always relevant. And so, God, enlighten us. Open our hearts. Give us passion to seek to make you the authority, the one and only, the one God in our lives, in our marriage, in our families today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. It's interesting that in Joshua 24, we see that Joshua is, he's been on a pilgrimage. I mean, he started with Moses as a slave. He has, he has journeyed as sort of Moses' right arm, his sidekick for 40 years in the wilderness. Moses, as you know, has taken the, God, the people of God to the threshold of the promised land. He has departed, and now Joshua has been selected. He's been chosen to be his replacement, the leader of the people of God. Millions of people. Joshua is not a, an old man at this point, probably about 80 years old, when he begins this, this pilgrimage of taking the people of God into the promised land. Now, at this juncture, in Joshua 24, we see the culmination of the completion of that incredible journey. There have been conquest after conquest, battle after battle. They have now taken the land. All 12 tribes have been assessed, and they have been assigned their, their, their land, their place, in which they are going to now occupy the, the land that God has promised. And now, at the conclusion of Joshua 24, we see Joshua giving to the people one of his last and final words. I don't know about you, but the last words of someone are very important. We ought to take note of them and listen because there's probably some incredible insight and truth into the words of someone that is speaking for the last time. And that's what Joshua is doing. And he assembles all the people together in Shechem. And, and this incredible large assembly have gathered there in the place of worship to, to, to together as the people of God to worship the Lord. Now in Joshua 24, beginning with verse 14, we see that Joshua is encouraging the people who have now occupied now the promised land. He's saying, guys, here's some insight that I want to give you in regard to making God the priority, the authority in your life. How do you make him exclusive? He is talking about exclusivity here, excluding all other gods and making God their sole one and only God that they serve. So I want to take a look at the text in the beginning of verse 14. I want, to, I want to first of all talk about seven things. Exclusivity, first of all, if you will give me the next slide, will help us recognize the gravity of my condition. Exclusivity always recognizes when you have fallen away in your commitment or your desire and intent to make God number one. Notice in the text, verse 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods, your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He's calling the people of God in this incredible assembly, first of all, to submit to the Lord. Fear the Lord, reverence him, place him in the priority place that you should, submitting only to him. Why? Because you reverence, you respect, you fear him, you know that he is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And he's calling them not only to surrender, but he's calling them to service. And the word service simply means to worship. It means to place him in the priority place that he should be. But they are to do that, notice he uses the word faithfulness, which means other words translated sincerity. In other words, he's saying, what I want you to do, folks, as we, as we complete 
this incredible journey of the promised land, as we begin now to enjoy the inheritance that God has given us, I want you to make sure that you are faithful. The word faithful or faithfulness here is the word for sincerity, meaning without hypocrisy. Do it without hypocrisy. Serve the Lord without hypocrisy. Why were there's why was there hypocrisy in the land? Because notice, throw away the gods. They had in their possession these false gods. As they were occupying the promised land and, and conquering city after city after silly city and pillaging the land, they noticed as they were going to the homes of the people they were conquering, there were gods that were made of, of precious metals and, and precious stones, and they took those gods and they brought them into their household. And now they were guilty of having these false gods in their homes, and they were beginning as individuals and the families then to, to recognize possibly these false gods, not the whole nation of Israel, but there were there were enough people in Israel for, for God to speak to Joshua to confront the people with this incredible condition by which the people of God were all guilty of. And he's saying to these people, I'm not going to overlook your hypocrisy. I'm not going to overlook your hypocrisy. And I think sometimes when, when we make commitments to God, we, we speak words to him. But in speaking words of commitment and words of 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 making him exclusive in our lives, we do so at the risk of being hypocritical if it is not a reality. For how many times have we told him we love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our soul, and we have not? How many times have we committed to making the exclusive one in our lives when our lives are causing him to take second chair or to be second fiddle or to be in second place in our lives because we have allowed other things to take precedent and to dominate our lives? And he's saying and he's suggesting to them they have done that. And as a result of that, he's saying God has not overlooked that. He's not going to overlook that. He's taking this very seriously. And as you're about to occupy the land that he's promised... You need to throw away, to release, to discard the ones that you now have in your possession, which are the false gods. And he suggests to them you need to stop. I mean, from the very foundation of the early days in the book of Genesis, we see the people that God has selected in his own struggling with this whole concept of having and possessing false gods. And there were several times of cleansing in, in the early part of the book of Genesis. Abraham was a part of that. He, he was once a pagan, an unbeliever who worshipped multiple gods. And God plucked him out of that and said, Abraham, make me exclusive. He was the, the father and the founder of the nation of Israel who were now supposed to worship a one God and only one God, not multiple gods. And there was trouble in Mesopotamia with that several times. And there were several times in which God had to cleanse the homes of the people. That was a problem. It didn't stop there even after Abraham was plucked out and he began a nation. We see that while they were in captivity in Egypt and they were serving the Egyptians and helping build this incredible empire, there were many Israelites who incorporated the worship of false gods and, and then claimed that there were multiple gods. Well, when they left Egypt and Moses was up in the mountains, what did they do? Because they were tired of waiting on him. They made a graven image and worshipped it instead of God. See, they had a problem with that. And now in occupying this promised land, there's still this, this problem of, of, of worshiping multiple gods. And, and God is saying, you can't do that. I will not permit it. It's a generational thing, isn't it? You know, there's, there's a whole message on generational curses that we pass down to our children who are passed down to their children. And if we as parents and grandparents aren't careful, we will cause our children to worship other gods other than only God by the lives that we live and the example that we set. And it's no wonder that we have a, a cultural distinctive difference in the modern church or the younger church today than the church that you and I knew when we were younger. And the shift and the drift have been subtle, but the end result has been the same here. And I'm convinced the church today is where it is because we, as, as, as the elders, have not passed down a pure Christianity of one and only one God. We've said it, we've spoken it, 
but we've not lived it. And he's saying there's hypocrisy among you, and I'm not going to overlook that. And exclusivity understands that hypocrisy. But secondly, not only does exclusivity recognize the gravity of my concern, but it requires individual decision-making on my part. It, it, it requires an individual attention. Notice verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, why would it seem undesirable to you, he's saying? I think it's undesirable because he's suggesting if you don't want to go where God wants you to go, if you don't want to do what God wants you to become, if you don't want to become the person that God wants you to become, to, to say what he wants you to say and to change and to do and to, to move where God is directing, if that seems undesirable because you know what? God, what you're leading, I don't want to go. What you're asking, I don't want to give. What you're demanding is too costly and it's undesirable to me. So if, if where God is leading and where he wants you to go, people, if that is undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. He's saying if, if you don't want to go with God, then, then choose your own gods. The gods of, of the, those, those of us who worship pre-Abraham in Mesopotamia, the gods of those of us who worshiped in Egypt, or maybe even the ones that we have now selected in the land that we have possessed. You can choose any number of those gods, or you can choose Jehovah God. It's your choice. This is the first time in the Old Testament where God has given the people of God a choice. He chose them. Now he's saying, you must now, at this, at this doorfront of enjoying this incredible blessing, you must choose me and continue to choose me. Almost sounds like salvation, doesn't it? Because Joshua and Jesus are pretty much the same. Joshua means Jesus. And Jesus took us over the threshold into the promised land. And we've made a commitment, we've made a decision to make him exclusive, to make him our one and only God when we turned from our sin and turned to him and committed to him our life and our love and our all to him, to follow him, to make him exclusive. And yet I wonder if we, like them, find ourselves being hypocritical because honestly under the conviction of the Holy Spirit we recognize and realize there are things and people and that are taking precedence in our lives over than God over God and notice the beautiful commitment of Joshua but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord it's a very public declaration he is unashamed to publicly announce to everyone who is standing there his commitment to God as for me and my house we will serve the Lord I know there are many of us who don't like public commitments, and today in most churches they're going out the wayside, but I'm convinced that the public commitment time should never be abolished. And there are times when we must, as the line in the sand is being drawn, we must step forward and cross that line in a very public sense because there's something about a public declaration of our intent to follow him that seals it, puts it in concrete, where others can recognize our commitment and hold us accountable to that. It's very public. It's very paternal in the fact that he is, he is the father of this family and the leader of his household. And as the father, he's saying, as for me, the father, and my house, I will lead my house to serve God. And I think it's time for us men to man up. I said, I think it's time for the men to man up. We are the spiritual leaders of our household, and for too many decades now, the women are taking precedence, and they're leading out spiritually in the family because the men are not leading. Oh, we'll provide financially, and we'll provide materially, and, and we may love them, but we're not spiritually leading our family. And, and, and I, I get it, ladies. I understand when your man is not stepping up, he's not manning up to his responsibility, and he's not fulfilling a role, that you're going to fulfill your role. But I think part of the problem is today that many women just flat out don't want to be led. They don't want to be led. And we have a whole problem with this feminist movement thing where we have women now seizing control of their families and I'm convinced that spiritually the men should lead out I'm not saying that wives are doormats I'm not saying that that we're not we're not the, the cross isn't level uh, I mean it's the, the the ground isn't level at the cross and we're equal with Christ and and the Bible says that we are submit to one another as unto the Lord and I think it's a mutual submission but 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 out of respect to the man that you've married and the man who leads your family you must you must let him lead even if it's in the wrong place, let him lead. Because ultimately, when it comes time for accountability, your husband and your father will stand before God giving an account of what he did in the leadership of his family in that role that is his. Not you, 
ladies, but him. It was paternal. Notice it was very purposeful and very intentional. I'm going to lead out. I'm going to lead out. It requires an individual decision on our part because that's exactly what happened to Joshua. Joshua stepped up the plate as, his, as, as, as was his role and said, as for me and my house, I will lead my family spiritually and we will serve only one God. The second thing about exclusivity is that it responds with a proper acknowledgement. It responds with a proper acknowledgement. It responds appropriately to what is being presented. There's a conviction that begins to set in the hearts and the minds and the lives of the people in verse 16. And the people then answer, far be it from us that we forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Under no circumstance will we do that. Why? Notice their, their reason. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us up out our father's up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. Verse 18, and the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. They're saying there's no way in the world we're going to abandon God now. He has fulfilled his promise. He has protected us. He has provided for us. Now we're in the promised land. And now that we have inherited all that we have, there's no way in the world under God's green, you know, the God's blue sky and, and as we're standing on God's green earth, are we ever now going to, to say no to this? After all he's done, and, 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 and as a, a disciple of Jesus, after all he's done for us through his, his death on the cross and his, his atoning work through the power of the resurrection of Jesus and all that he's done, how can we not make him exclusive in our lives? How can we not? It should be what we should consider. And notice their response. We too will serve the Lord. We, Joshua, will serve the Lord with you. Why? Because he is our God. It's a personal relationship. He is ours as he is yours. And we with you will serve only him. An incredible exclusive relationship. They respond in an appropriate way. Absolutely, we will serve the Lord. We're tired of our hypocrisy and we will serve the Lord. But notice exclusivity reflects on the consequences of, of making such a decision. There are some consequences here. And exclusivity understands those consequences. And, and before it steps out and makes a decision and, and commits in a certain way, they understand that, that what they say they need to back up with action. Because if you say it and you don't do it, it's hypocrisy. Verse 19, Joshua says to the people after having made that kind of response, he said, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. It's almost like saying, whoa, Nelly. Hang on a minute, guys. Wait a minute, people. Are you sure you've considered the consequences of having made this covenant relationship with God, of making him exclusively your God and only your God and wipe out all the other, are you sure? Because if you're making this covenant with God and you don't, you don't live up to what you're claiming and you, you've given to him, and you know, God is, is a holy God. He demands exclusivity. He says we are to be holy as he is holy. He will not tolerate sin and anything that causes him to be less than, than the first, the only God in your life is sin. Not only is he a holy God, but he is a jealous God in the sense that he is not going to share you with anybody or anything, including your wife or your kids or your job or your career or your future. He is not going to take second chair, second fiddle, be in second place to no one. He is a jealous God. And anything that puts him in second place is unholy. And subject then to what he's saying, it is rebellion and will bring about severe consequences. I think some people would say, well, 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 wait a minute. Isn't God loving and kind and merciful and, and all of those things? Yes, he is those things. For those who repent. But without repentance, there can be no reconciliation. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound, Paul says? By no means. And when we are rebellious and non-repentive and we continue to live with hypocrisy in our lives, how can God just kind of frown and say, that's all right. Make me fifth, tenth, twentieth in your life. That's, that's cool. I, I don't care. As long as I'm, I'm being spoken from your lips, it's okay. Live a different life other than what you proclaim on Sunday morning. That's fine with me. No, it's not. That's not what God is asking from us or demanding from us. 
exclusivity. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end to you after he has been good to you. He's been good to you. You, you came to faith in Christ and, 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 and you turn from that sin and turn to Jesus and, and you committed your heart and life and soul to him. Now don't turn back from that. Don't, don't, don't forsake that. Continue in that. God's been good to you. Live the life. Follow the path. But the people said to Joshua, no. They're almost incensed that Joshua said, hey, you haven't counted the cost. You haven't weighed out the the terms here. Yeah, we have. We will serve the Lord. They were emphatic about their desire to put all other gods away because reconciliation and redemption that happens when, when, when repentance has happened is a, is a lifetime commitment. They understood that. They wanted to live that reality out in their lives, and they wanted to commit to it. You know, when we make commitments and covenants with God, we need to understand that there's a price to pay when we don't make those, those a reality. I mean, when we walk down the aisle and, and we committed to our spouse... For the rest of our lives, most of us thought we had counted the cost. <laughs> and then we woke up the next morning, we realized what that was. But we were pleased to do it. Why? Not only do we love them, but we had a covenant with them. And we were willing to do and to make and to happen whatever that, that needed. And God is saying the same thing. When you publicly say we will, count the cost. Be willing to step up to the plate and give all you need in order to make that a reality. Which brings us to the fifth thing is that exclusivity ratifies my commitment completely. It ratifies, it validates because words are only words if there are no actions that back up the words. And so Joshua was coming to the people and said, all right, guys, what I want you to do is I want you now to act upon what you have said you were going to do. We're going to make God exclusive. You are? Yeah, we are. Yeah. All right, here's what you need to do. Joshua says, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they said, we are witnesses, they replied. He's saying to them, nobody's putting a gun to your head. Nobody's twisting your arm. Nobody's making you say this. Nobody's asking you to step up the plate and give God this exclusive relationship. You're doing it solely on your own. Yes, we are. Then you now are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to follow God and make him exclusive. You now are witnesses to what you're saying. There's not a better witness than the one that says it, is there? Because we often know what we've said and we know the intent of our heart. Others can hear us say words, but they know what our thoughts are and what our feelings and our emotions are. But when we say it, we know what our thoughts are and our emotions are. We know that we've considered the cost. And then he says in verse 23, Now then, Joshua says to them, Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel, throw them away. Go to your homes. Take those things out and chunk them. Get rid of them. Cleanse your household and cleanse your family. And serve me only. Yield to me your heart, your passions, your love. You know, I, I was over there and I, I kind of got off. off uh, I, know, and you, I know you find this hard to believe, but kind of got off my notes for a little bit. And... Uh, uh, I've been saving up for quite some time, and, and I, think, I think what we have today, I'm, I'm just going to clear a spot and throw a fit here for a second, okay? Can I do that? Okay. I think we have idols in our homes today. And I wonder about the idol of television. I said, I wonder about the idol of television. I mean, and I know we have some people here who don't have TVs in their homes, and, and, and kudos to you, and that's great. I'm not one of those uh, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, I saved up my money. Uh, uh, all the funeral money and things like that, I kind of stash away. And, and, and I had my eye on a flat screen TV. And I've been waiting for years to buy one of these things. So I got a 55-inch flat screen TV. And, man, I watched the game last night in living color, man. It's awesome. Down in my basement in my man cave, which looks like a female cave, but it's a man cave, you know. I'm just glad Patty lets me live there. But anyway, and I'm watching this, you know, and, and I'm thinking about the idol of television and how it's crept into our home and it's changing the culture of the church 
by the influences that it brings from the world. I, I've never seen more programs today with more gay people in it than any other time in history of television. I, I see more filth presented to people who can watch it than any time. I have channels of unholy crap. Bad word, but nasty stuff. Unbelievable stuff that's available to the television. And parents let kids watch that unattended. It's phenomenal to me. And, 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 I, and, I, and I challenge young couples over there. If you have a TV in your room, take it out. I said, if you have a TV in your room, take it out. We, we've never had a TV in our room. You shouldn't have a TV in your room. I, I, in the bedroom, sorry. In the bedroom. Uh, that, that's a place, I think, where you and the spouse should spend the last few moments of your day going over the day and speaking to each other and speaking kindness and love and, and things like that. You don't need to be watching the idiot box. And, la- and that to be the last stuff you're thinking about before you go to bed. Seriously. That should be a, a sanctified place where, where the world doesn't have a right to invade. And I know there are filters on TVs and things today, but, but, but why have one in there? The, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've counseled over 35 years of, of, of men who lay in bed, watch TV, and the wife's kind of having a hard time going to sleep. And usually it's the last thing we turn off before we turn off the lights at night. And it's become an idol. The internet has become an idol today. Facebook can be an idol today. I mean, there are all kinds of things. And I think we need to do what this, this, this group of people did. In verse 24, And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. We will. We're going to cleanse our home of the idols that are there. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have a TV burning next Saturday here. Okay? I was in a revival. We had a guy for revival. His name is, uh, oh, I almost said his name. Uh, he's dead now. He's with Jesus. But he got up and talked about Cabbage Patch Dolls in the middle of this sermon and, and, and records and all that. And we had a big burning uh, one Saturday night at our church. And my daughter had a Cabbage Patch Doll. And, you know, and, and he, anyway, um, that was a little over the top. But. Um, I'm not saying we're going to go over the top here, but I think we need to be exclusive and, uh, and be wise. We need to obey him. Whatever he says, do it. Number six, we need to remember the covenant of God. I think exclusivity always remembers and reflects upon the covenant that we make with God because he takes our covenants seriously. I had a man the other day who, who no longer attends our church, and he's going to another church that's closer to his home, but he, he sent in his, his, uh, his commitment that he made to the Greater Things campaign. I didn't see the contribution, but Roseanne showed me the other side of the contribution where he had written down the covenant that he made to the Lord, and he takes it seriously, and he made a covenant for the Greater Things until the debt was paid off, and he's still giving it because he believes in the seriousness of covenant. The covenant marriage relationship takes seriously, and our covenant to make him exclusive is a serious one. And Joshua, notice, records these things in the book of the law. He didn't attach them. They're not in the book of the law, but they were there sort of as an addendum. They were there in a loosely form so that when they opened the, the book of the law and they read from it, there the covenant was. And I'm convinced that on, from time to time, uh, the prophet or the priest or the one who spoke read the covenant to remind the people of the covenant that they made. It was a it was a contract, a binding agreement between the people of God. And then he took a large stone and he set up under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. They were in Shechem and they were there in a worship setting and there was a worship place there. And he took a large boulder and bam, if you know anything about Joshua, he loved to do stuff with boulders, stones, altars, and remembrance things of the activity of God. And that's what this stone was. And he says... Uh, that this stone will be a witness against you. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. He's heard the words of the Lord. Isn't it true that, that when we don't praise him, that even the rocks will cry out? It's an analogy. It's a little play on things here. It's not literal. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to God. 
He's saying when we come to Shechem and we worship every time we come, we're going to see this big boulder here, and you're going to be reminded of this covenant time relationship with God, and you're going to be reminded of what you said to him and what God said to you and how you have entered into this contractual agreement, and God is going to hold you to it. So I think when we are exclusive in our commitment to him, we need to understand that in that covenant relationship, God remembers our covenants. He remembers what we promised. So don't promise hastily. Don't promise unconditionally, if you don't mean it, don't step across the line when it's drawn and say, I commit wholeheartedly. I'm in God, unless we really mean it, and then do everything we can then to seek to fulfill that which he's asked us to do. And notice in verse 28, he says, then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. Why is that? Because the work is finished. I mean, they've occupied the promised land. Joshua has done what God has said. He's assembled all the people. And he's called them out as he he drew the line in the sand and said, here it is. I'm going to be the first. I step. Now, come on, step over with me. And they step over into the inheritance that God had given them. They had had now occupied the land. They had the, the 12 tribes had their pieces of land. They had their families settled. And now they were committing and they were enjoying now the inheritance. Sounds like salvation, doesn't it? We stepped over the line. We're now into our inheritance. It's not just future, but it's a present reality. And in and as we enjoy this present reality of our inheritance, we must remember the covenant relationship we made with him when we came to faith in Christ and turned from our sin and, and received him and committed to him to doing everything that we can to make that a reality because, notice what he says lastly, exclusivity realizes the blessings of faithfulness because God is a faithful God. He is a faithful God. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Isn't it incredible that that God honored their faithfulness and continued to bless them as they continually walked in faithfulness to God? God is faithful. God is faithful. Let me tell you how much God is faithful. I have three children, don't know why, who are faithfully serving God. Two sons who are pastors, one daughter who married a pastor. I have six grandkids, about to have seven grandkids at the end of the summer, and they're all under seven. And I'm watching now my children pour their lives into their children. And I can't imagine a greater heritage and a greater blessing than to see my children pour God into their children. You can pastor the largest church or have the biggest business. You can have all the money available to you in the world, occupy the greatest position in government, have power beyond compare. But if your kids are not walking with God and they're not teaching their kids to walk with God, I think all of that is meaningless. Some of you know the struggles and the sadness, the disappointment of your children not really walking with God. And for most of us, it's no fault of our own. Because they too must make their choice in who they will serve. It's great to know, to see that happening down the line. I don't think my youngest son would mind for me to share this with you, to show the faithfulness of God. He's an interesting young man. He's preached here many times. He's getting married in just two weeks. And we had a conversation yesterday. And he's not kissed his uh, bride-to-be yet. They've been dating for quite some time. Now, he's a pastor, okay? And he's not kissed her. They've not contacted lip-to-lip. Now, there's been a few photographs I've seen that has come close. And I've told him so. But they've not kissed yet. So the whole dating scene, they've not kissed one time. Their first kiss will be after the marriage vows. They have number one photographer in Canada, in Winnipeg, who wants to be there just so he could photograph that. He's never heard of, never seen anything quite like that ever before. But he said to me last Saturday, again, I don't think he'll mind this. He'll watch the tape. I hope he doesn't. He said, Dad, two weeks from tonight, you know what's going to happen? I said, yes, son, you're going to get married. He said, no, Dad, two weeks from tonight, I'll no longer be a virgin. God ordained that. 26 years old. 26 years old. 
He's been faithful to God. And his honeymoon night, God will honor his faithfulness. It's not been easy to be a young man in the world that we live in today to remain pure. I'm his accountability partner on the internet and everything he sees comes to me. It's great to know that when we're faithful to our covenant to him, he is faithful to his covenant toward us. You can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. Make him exclusive in your life. And when you do, he will honor you. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com. 